learning. The curious thing is I actually kept those vows. I kept them for years. I still keep them. I have broken many promises in my life, including a marriage vow, but I have never broken that promise. I even kept those vows through the chaos of my 20s, a time in my life when I was shamefully irresponsible in every other imaginable way. Yet despite all my immaturity and carelessness and recklessness, I still honored my vows to writing with the fealty of a holy pilgrim. I wrote every day throughout my 20s. For a while, I had a boyfriend who was a musician, and he practiced every day. He played scales. I wrote small fictional scenes. It was the same idea, to keep your hand in the craft, to stay close to it. On bad days when I felt no inspiration at all, I would set the kitchen timer for 30 minutes, and I would make myself sit there and scribble something, anything. I had once read an interview with John Updike, where he said that some of the best novels you've ever read were written in an hour a day. I figured I could always carve out at least 30 minutes somewhere to dedicate myself to my work, no matter what else was going on or how badly I believed the work was going. Generally speaking, the work did go badly, too. I really didn't know what I was doing. I felt sometimes like I was trying to carve scrimshaw while wearing oven mitts. Everything took forever. I had no chops, no game. It could take me a whole year just to finish one tiny short story. Most of the time, all I was doing was imitating my favorite authors, anyhow. I went through a Hemingway stage, who doesn't, but I also went through a pretty serious Annie Prue stage and a rather embarrassing Cormac McCarthy stage. But that's what you have to do at the beginning. Everybody imitates before they can innovate. For a while, I tried to write like a Southern Gothic novelist because I found that to be a far more exotic voice than my own New England sensibility. I was not an especially convincing Southern writer, of course, but that's only because I'd never lived a day in the South. A friend of mine who actually was from the South said to me in exasperation after reading one of my stories, you got all these old men sitting around the porch eating peanuts and you ain't never sat around a porch eating peanuts in your life. You got some nerve, girl. Oh, well, we try. None of it was easy, but that wasn't the point. I had never asked writing to be easy. I had only asked writing to be interesting. And it was always interesting to me. Even when I couldn't do it right, it was still interesting to me. It still interests me. Nothing has ever interested me more. That profound sense of interest kept me working, even as I had no tangible successes. And slowly, I improved. It's a simple and generous rule of life that whatever you practice, you will improve at. For instance, if I had spent my 20s playing basketball every single day, or making pastry dough every single day, or studying auto mechanics every single day, I'd probably be pretty good at foul shots and croissants and transmissions by now. Instead, I learned how to write. A caveat. But this does not mean that unless you began your creative endeavors in your 20s, it's too late. God, no, please don't get that idea. It's never too late. I could give you dozens of examples of amazing people who didn't start following their creative paths until later, sometimes much later in life. But for the sake of economy, I will only tell you about one of them. Her name was Winifred. I knew Winifred back in the 1990s in Greenwich Village. I first met her at her 90th birthday party, which was quite a wild bash. She was a friend of a friend of mine, a guy who was in his 20s. Winifred had friends of all ages and backgrounds. Winifred was a bit of a luminary around Washington Square back in the day. She was a full-on bohemian legend who had lived in the village forever. She had long red hair that she wore piled glamorously on top of her head. 
She was always draped in ropes of amber beads, and she and her late husband, a scientist, had spent their vacations chasing typhoons and hurricanes all over the world just for fun. She kind of was a hurricane herself. Winifred was the most vividly alive woman I had ever met in my young life. So one day, looking for inspiration, I asked her, what's the best book you've ever read? She said, oh, darling, I could never narrow it down to just one book because so many books are important to me. But I can tell you my favorite subject. Ten years ago, I began studying the history of ancient Mesopotamia, and it became my passion. And let me tell you, it has totally changed my life. For me, at the age of 25, to hear a 90-year-old widow speak of having her life changed by passion, and so recently, was a revelation. It was one of those moments where I could almost feel my perspective expanding, as if my mind were being ratcheted open several notches and was now welcoming in all sorts of new possibilities for what a woman's life could look like. But as I learned more about Winifred's passion, what struck me was that she was now an acknowledged expert in the history of ancient Mesopotamia. She had given that field of study an entire decade of her life, after all. And if you devote yourself to anything diligently for ten years, that will make you an expert. That's the time it would take to earn two master's degrees and a doctorate. She had gone to the Middle East on several archaeological digs. She had learned cuneiform script. She was friendly with the greatest scholars and curators on the subject. She had never missed a related museum exhibit or lecture when it came to town. People now sought out Winifred for answers about ancient Mesopotamia because now she was the authority. I was a young woman who had only recently finished college. There was still some dull and limited part of my imagination that believed my education was over because NYU had granted me a diploma. Meeting Winifred, though, made me realize that your education isn't over when they say it's over. Your education is over when you say it's over. And Winifred, back when she was a mere girl of 80, had firmly decided, it ain't over yet. So when can you start pursuing your most creative and passionate life? You can start whenever you decide to start. The Empty Bucket I kept working. I kept writing. I kept not getting published, but that was okay, because I was getting educated. The most important benefit of my years of disciplined solitary work was that I began to recognize the emotional patterns of creativity, or rather, I began to recognize my patterns. I could see that there were psychological cycles to my own creative process, and that those cycles were always pretty much the same. Ah, I learned to say, when I would inevitably begin to lose heart for a project just a few weeks after I'd enthusiastically begun it, this is the part of the process where I wish I'd never engaged with this idea at all. I remember this. I always go through this stage. Or this is the part where I tell myself that I'll never write a good sentence again. Or this is the part where I beat myself up for being such a lazy loser. Or this is the part where I begin fantasizing in terror about how bad the reviews are going to be if this thing even gets published at all. Or, once the project was finished, this is the part where I panic that I'll never be able to make anything again. Over years of devotional work, though, I found that if I just stayed with the process and didn't panic, I could pass safely through each stage of anxiety and on to the next level. I heartened myself with reminders that these fears were completely natural human reactions to interaction with the unknown. If I could convince myself that I was supposed to be there, that we are meant to engage with inspiration, and that inspiration wants to work with us, 
then I could usually get through my emotional minefield without blowing myself up before the project was finished. At such times, I could almost hear creativity talking to me while I spun off into fear and doubt. Stay with me, it would say. Come back to me. Trust me. I decided to trust it. My single greatest expression of stubborn gladness has been the endurance of that trust. A particularly elegant commentary on this instinct came from the Nobel laureate Seamus Haney, who said that when one is learning how to write poetry, one should not expect it to be immediately good. The aspiring poet is constantly lowering a bucket only halfway down a well, coming up time and again with nothing but empty air. The frustration is immense, but you must keep doing it anyway. After many years of practice, Haney explained, the chain draws unexpectedly tight, and you have dipped into waters that will continue to entice you back. You'll have broken the skin on the pool of yourself. The Shit Sandwich Back in my early 20s, I had a good friend who was an aspiring writer just like me. I remember how he used to descend into dark funks of depression about his lack of success, about his inability to get published. He would sulk and rage. I don't want to be sitting around, he would moan. I want this to all add up to something. I want this to become my job. Even back then, I thought there was something off about his attitude. Mind you, I wasn't being published either, and I was hungry too. I would have loved to have all the same stuff he wanted, success, reward, affirmation. I was no stranger to disappointment and frustration. But I remember thinking that learning how to endure your disappointment and frustration is part of the job of a creative person. If you want to be an artist of any sort, it seemed to me, then handling your frustration is a fundamental aspect of the work, perhaps the single most fundamental aspect of the work. Frustration is not an interruption of your process. Frustration is the process. The fun part, the part where it doesn't feel like work at all, is when you're actually creating something wonderful and everything's going great and everyone loves it and you're flying high. But such instants are rare. You don't just get to leap from bright moment to bright moment. How you manage yourself between those bright moments, when things aren't going so great, is a measure of how devoted you are to your vocation and how equipped you are for the weird demands of creative living. Holding yourself together through all the phases of creation is where the real work lies. I recently read a fabulous blog by a writer named Mark Manson who said that the secret to finding your purpose in life is to answer this question in total honesty. What's your favorite flavor of shit sandwich? What Manson means is that every single pursuit, no matter how wonderful and exciting and glamorous it may initially seem, comes with its own brand of shit sandwich, its own lousy side effects. As Manson writes with profound wisdom, everything sucks some of the time. You just have to decide what sort of suckage you're willing to deal with. So the question is not so much what are you passionate about. The question is what are you passionate enough about that you can endure the most disagreeable aspects of the work. Manson explains it this way. If you want to be a professional artist but you aren't willing to see your work rejected hundreds if not thousands of times, then you're done before you start. If you want to be a hotshot court lawyer but can't stand the 80-hour work weeks, then I got bad news for you. Because if you love and want something enough, whatever it is, then you don't really mind eating the shit sandwich that comes with it. If you truly love having babies, for instance, then you don't care about the morning sickness. If you truly want to be a minister, you don't mind listening to other people's problems. If you truly love performing, you will accept the discomforts and inconveniences of living on the road. If you truly want to see the world, you'll risk getting pickpocketed on a train. 
If you truly want to practice your figure skating, you'll get up before dawn on cold mornings to go to the ice rink and skate. My friend back in the day claimed that he wanted to be a writer with all his heart, but it turns out that he didn't want to eat the shit sandwich that comes along with that pursuit. He loved writing, sure, but he didn't love it enough to endure the ignominy of not getting the results he wanted when he wanted them. He didn't want to work so hard at anything unless he was guaranteed some measure of worldly success on his own terms. Which means, I think, that he only wanted to be a writer with half his heart. And yeah, soon enough he quit. Which left me hungrily eyeballing his half-eaten shit sandwich, wanting to ask, are you going to finish that? Because that's how much I loved the work. I would even eat somebody else's shit sandwich if it meant that I got to spend more time writing. Your day job. The whole time I was practicing to be a writer, I always had a day job. Even after I got published, I didn't quit my day job, just to be on the safe side. In fact, I didn't quit my day job, or my day jobs, I should say, until I had already written three books, and those three books were all published by major houses and were all reviewed nicely in the New York Times. One of them had even been nominated for a National Book Award. From an outside perspective, it might have looked like I'd already made it, but I wasn't taking any chances, so I kept my day job. It wasn't until my fourth book, and that book was freaking eat, pray, love, for heaven's sake, that I finally allowed myself to quit all other work and become nothing other than a writer of books. I held on to those other sources of income for so long because I never wanted to burden my writing with the responsibility of paying for my life. I knew better than to ask this of my writing, because over the years I have watched so many other people murder their creativity by demanding that their art pay the bills. I've seen artists drive themselves broke and crazy because of this insistence that they are not legitimate creators unless they can exclusively live off their creativity. And when their creativity fails them, meaning doesn't pay the rent, they descend into resentment, anxiety, or even bankruptcy. Worst of all, they often quit creating at all. I've always felt like this is so cruel to your work, to demand a regular paycheck from it, as if creativity were a government job or a trust fund. Look, if you can manage to live comfortably off your inspiration forever, that's fantastic. That's everyone's dream, right? But don't let that dream turn into a nightmare. Financial demands can put so much pressure on the delicacies and vagaries of inspiration. You must be smart about providing for yourself. To claim that you are too creative to think about financial questions is to infantilize yourself, and I beg you not to infantilize yourself, because it's demeaning to your soul. While it's lovely to be childlike in your pursuit of creativity, in other words, it's dangerous to be childish. Other self-infantilizing fantasies include the dream of marrying for money, the dream of inheriting money, the dream of winning the lottery, and the dream of finding a studio wife, male or female, who will look after all your mundane concerns so that you can be free to commune with inspiration forever in a peaceful cocoon utterly sheltered from the inconveniences of reality. Come now. This is a world, not a womb. You can look after yourself in this world while looking after your creativity at the same time, just as people have done for ages. What's more, there is a profound sense of honor to be found in looking after yourself, and that honor will resonate powerfully in your work. It will make your work stronger. Also, it may be the case that there are seasons when you can live off your art and seasons when you cannot. This need not be regarded as a crisis. It's only natural in the flux and uncertainty of a creative life. Or maybe you took a big risk in order to follow some creative dream 
and it didn't quite pay off. So now you have to work for the man for a while to save up money until it's time to go chase your next dream. That's fine, too. Just do it. But to yell at your creativity saying, you must earn money for me, is sort of like yelling at a cat. It has no idea what you're talking about, and all you're doing is scaring it away because you're making really loud noises and your face looks weird when you do that. I held on to my day jobs for so long because I wanted to keep my creativity free and safe. I maintained alternative streams of income so that when my inspiration wasn't flowing, I could say to it reassuringly, no worries, mate, just take your time. I'm here whenever you're ready. I was always willing to work hard so that my creativity could play lightly. In so doing, I became my own patron. I became my own studio wife. So many times I have longed to say to stressed-out, financially-strapped artists, just take the pressure off yourself, dude, and get a job. There's no dishonor in having a job. What is dishonorable is scaring away your creativity by demanding that it pay for your entire existence. This is why whenever anyone tells me they're quitting their day job in order to write a novel, my palms get a little sweaty. This is why when anyone tells me that their plan for getting out of debt is to sell their first screenplay, I'm like, yikes. Write that novel, yes. Definitely try to sell that screenplay. I hope with all my heart that good fortune finds you and showers you with abundance. But don't count on the payoff, I beg of you, only because such payoffs are exceedingly rare. And you might very well kill off your creativity by holding it to such a harsh ultimatum. You can always make your art on the side of your bread-and-butter job. That's what I did for three whole books. And if it hadn't been for the banana's success of Eat, Pray, Love, that's what I'd still be doing now. That's what Toni Morrison did when she used to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning in order to work on her novels before going off to her real-life career in the publishing world. That's what J.K. Rowling did back when she was an impoverished single mother, struggling to get by and writing on the side. That's what my friend Ann Patchett did back when she worked as a waitress at TGI Fridays and wrote in her spare hours. That's what a busy married couple I know does, both of them illustrators, both of them with full-time jobs, when, every morning, they rise a full hour before their children awake to sit across from each other in their small studio space and quietly draw. People don't do this kind of thing because they have all kinds of extra time and energy for it. They do this kind of thing because their creativity matters to them enough that they are willing to make all kinds of extra sacrifices for it. Unless you come from landed gentry, that's what everyone does. Paint Your Ox For most of human history, then, the vast majority of people have made their art in stolen moments— using scraps of borrowed time, and often using pilfered or discarded materials to boot. The Irish poet Patrick Cavanaugh says it marvelously. See over there a created splendor made by one individual from things residual. I once encountered a man in India who owned nothing of value but an ox. The ox had two handsome horns. In order to celebrate his ox, the man had painted one of the horns hot pink and the other turquoise blue. He then glued little bells to the tips of each horn so that when the ox shook its head, its flashy pink and blue horns made a cheerful, tinkling sound. This hard-working and financially stressed man had only one valuable possession, but he had embellished it to the max, using whatever materials he could get his hands on, a bit of house paint, a touch of glue, and some bells. As a result of his creativity, he now possessed the most interesting-looking ox in town. For what? Just because. 
because a decorated ox is better than a non-decorated ox, obviously. As evidenced by the fact that eleven years later, the only animal I can still distinctly remember from my visit to that small Indian village is that fantastically decked-out ox. Is this the ideal environment in which to create, having to make art out of things residual in stolen time? Not really. Or maybe it's fine. Maybe it doesn't matter because that's how things have always been made. Most individuals have never had enough time, and they've never had enough resources, and they've never had enough support or patronage or reward, and yet still they persist in creating. They persist because they care. They persist because they are called to be makers by any means necessary. Money helps, to be sure, but if money were the only thing people needed in order to live creative lives, then the mega-rich would be the most imaginative, generative, and original thinkers among us, and they simply are not. The essential ingredients for creativity remain exactly the same for everybody. Courage, enchantment, permission, persistence, trust, and those elements are universally accessible. Which does not mean that creative living is always easy. It merely means that creative living is always possible. I once read a heartbreaking letter that Herman Melville wrote to his good friend Nathaniel Hawthorne, complaining that he simply could not find time to work on his book about that whale, because... I am so pulled hither and thither by circumstances. Melville said that he longed for a big, wide-open stretch of time in which to create. He called it the calm, the coolness, the silent, grass-growing mood in which a man ought always to compose. But that sort of luxuriousness simply did not exist for him. He was broke, he was stressed, and he could not find the hours to write in peace. I do not know of any artist, successful or unsuccessful, amateur or pro, who does not long for that kind of time. I do not know of any creative soul who does not dream of calm, cool, grass-growing days in which to work without interruption. Somehow, though, nobody ever seems to achieve it. Or if they do achieve it, through a grant, for instance, or a friend's generosity, or an artist's residency, that idol is just temporary. And then life will inevitably rush back in. Even the most successful creative people I know complain that they never seem to get all the hours they need in order to engage in dreamy, pressure-free creative exploration. Reality's demands are constantly pounding on the door and disturbing them. On some other planet, in some other lifetime, perhaps that sort of peaceful, Edenic work environment does exist, but it rarely exists here on Earth. Melville never got that kind of environment, for instance. But he still somehow managed to write Moby Dick anyhow. Have an Affair Why do people persist in creating, even when it's difficult and inconvenient and often financially unrewarding? They persist because they're in love. They persist because they are hot for their vocation. Let me explain what I mean by hot. You know how people who are having extramarital affairs always seem to manage to find time to see each other in order to have wild, transgressive sex? It doesn't seem to matter if those people have full-time jobs and families at home to support. They still somehow always manage to find the time to sneak off and see their lover, no matter what the difficulties, the risks, or the costs. Even if they get only 15 minutes together in a stairwell, they will take that time and they will make out with each other like crazy— if anything, the fact that they only have 15 minutes together somehow makes it all even hotter. When people are having an affair, they don't mind losing sleep or missing meals. 
They will make whatever sacrifices they have to make, and they will blast through any obstacles in order to be alone with the object of their devotion and obsession because it matters to them. Let yourself fall in love with your creativity like that and see what happens. Stop treating your creativity like it's a tired old unhappy marriage, a grind, a drag, and start regarding it with the fresh eyes of a passionate lover. Even if you have only 15 minutes a day in a stairwell alone with your creativity, take it. Go hide in that stairwell and make out with your art. You can get a lot of making out done in 15 minutes, as any furtive teenager can tell you. Sneak off and have an affair with your most creative self. Lie to everyone about where you're actually going on your lunch break. Pretend you're traveling on a business trip when secretly you're retreating in order to paint or to write poetry or to draw up the plans for your future organic mushroom farm. Conceal it from your family and friends, whatever it is you're up to. Slip away from everyone else at the party and go off to dance alone with your ideas in the dark. Wake yourself up in the middle of the night in order to be alone with your inspiration while nobody is watching. You don't need that sleep right now. You can give it up. What else are you willing to give up in order to be alone with your beloved? Don't think of it all as burdensome. Think of it all as sexy. Tristram Shandy chimes in. Also, try to present yourself to your creativity as if you are sexy as if you are somebody worth spending time with. I've always taken delight on this point from the novel Tristram Shandy, written by Lawrence Stern, 18th century British essayist, novelist, and general man about town. In the novel, Tristram presents what I see as a marvelous cure for writer's block, to dress up in his finest regalia and act all princely, thus attracting ideas and inspiration to his side on account of his fabulous ensemble. Specifically, here's what Tristram claims he would do when he was feeling stupid and blocked, and when his thoughts would rise heavy and pass gummis through his pen. Instead of sitting there in a funk, staring hopelessly at the empty page, he would leap up from the chair, get a fresh razor, and give himself a nice clean shave. How Homer could write with so long a beard, I don't know. After that, he would engage in this elaborate transformation. I changed my shirt, put on a better coat, send for my last wig, put my topaz ring upon my finger, and in a word, dress myself from one end to the other of me, after my best fashion. Thus decked out to the nines, Tristram would strut around the room, presenting himself to the universe of creativity as appealingly as possible, looking every inch like a dashing suitor and a confident fellow. A charming trick, but best of all, it actually worked. As he explained, a man cannot dress, but his ideas get clothed at the same time, and if he dresses like a gentleman, every one of them stands presented to his imagination. I suggest that you try this trick at home. I've done this myself sometimes, when I'm feeling particularly sluggish and useless, and when I feel like my creativity is hiding from me. I'll go look at myself in the mirror and say firmly, why wouldn't creativity hide from you, Gilbert? Look at yourself. Then I clean myself up. I take that goddamn scrunchie out of my greasy hair. I get out of those stale pajamas and take a shower. I shave, not my beard, but at least my legs. I put on some decent clothes. I brush my teeth. I wash my face. I put on lipstick, and I never wear lipstick. I clear my desk of its clutter, throw open a window, and maybe even light a scented candle. I might even put on perfume, for God's sake. I don't even put on perfume to go out to dinner, but I will put on perfume in an effort to seduce creativity back to my side. Coco Chanel said, a woman who doesn't wear perfume has no future. 
I always try to remind myself that I am having an affair with my creativity, and I make an effort to present myself to inspiration like somebody you might actually want to have an affair with, not like someone who's been wearing her husband's underwear around the house all week because she has totally given up. I put myself together from head to toe, from one end to the other of me, in Tristram Shandy's words, and then I get back to my task. It works every time. Honest to God, if I had a freshly powdered 18th century wig like Tristram's, I would wear it sometimes. Fake it till you make it is the trick. Dress for the novel you want to write is another way of saying it. Seduce the big magic, and it will always come back to you, the same way a raven is captivated by a shiny, spinning thing. Fear in High Heels I was once in love with a gifted young man somebody who I thought was a far more talented writer than me, who decided in his twenties that he would not bother trying to be a writer after all, because the work never came out on the page quite as exquisitely as it lived in his head. He found it all too frustrating. He didn't want to sully the dazzling ideal that existed in his mind by putting a clumsy rendition of it down on paper. While I beavered away at my awkward, disappointing short stories, this brilliant young man refused to write a word, he even tried to make me feel ashamed that I was attempting to write. Did the dreadful results not pain and offend me? He possessed a more pristine sense of artistic discernment, was the implication. Exposure to imperfections, even his own, injured his soul. He felt there was nobility in his choice never to write a book, if it could not be a great book. He said, I would rather be a beautiful failure than a deficient success. Hell, I wouldn't. The image of the tragic artist who lays down his tools rather than fall short of his impeccable ideals holds no romance for me. I don't see this path as heroic. I think it's far more honorable to stay in the game, even if you're objectively failing at the game, than to excuse yourself from participation because of your delicate sensibilities. But in order to stay in the game, you must let go of your fantasy of perfection. So let's talk for a moment about perfection. The great American novelist Robert Stone once joked that he possessed the two worst qualities imaginable in a writer. He was lazy, and he was a perfectionist. Indeed, these are the essential ingredients for torpor and misery right there. If you want to live a contented creative life, you do not want to cultivate either one of those traits, trust me. What you want is to cultivate quite the opposite. You must learn how to become a deeply disciplined half-ass. It starts by forgetting about perfect. We don't have time for perfect. In any event, perfection is unachievable. It's a myth and a trap and a hamster wheel that will run you to death. The writer Rebecca Solnit puts it well. So many of us believe in perfection, which ruins everything else, because the perfect is not only the enemy of the good, it's also the enemy of the realistic, the possible, and the fun. Perfectionism stops people from completing their work, yes. But even worse, it often stops people from beginning their work. Perfectionists often decide in advance that the end product is never going to be satisfactory, so they don't even bother trying to be creative in the first place. The most evil trick about perfectionism, though, is that it disguises itself as a virtue. In job interviews, for instance, people will sometimes advertise their perfectionism as if it's their greatest selling point, taking pride in the very thing that is holding them back from enjoying their fullest possible engagement with creative living. They wear their perfectionism like a badge of honor, as if it signals high tastes and exquisite standards. But I see it differently. 
I think perfectionism is just a high-end haute couture version of fear. I think perfectionism is just fear in fancy shoes and a mink coat, pretending to be elegant when actually it's just terrified. Because underneath that shiny veneer, perfectionism is nothing more than the deep existential angst that says again and again, I am not good enough and I will never be good enough. Perfectionism is a particularly evil lure for women who, I believe, hold themselves to an even higher standard of performance than do men. There are many reasons why women's voices and visions are not more widely represented today in creative fields. Some of that exclusion is due to regular old misogyny, but it's also true that all too often, women are the ones holding themselves back from participating in the first place, holding back their ideas, holding back their contributions, holding back their leadership and their talents. Too many women still seem to believe that they are not allowed to put themselves forward at all until both they and their work are perfect and beyond criticism. Meanwhile, putting forth work that is far from perfect rarely stops men from participating in the global cultural conversation. Just saying. And I don't say this as a criticism of men, by the way. I like that feature in men, their absurd overconfidence, the way that they will casually decide, well, I'm 41% qualified for this task, so give me the job. Yes, sometimes the results are ridiculous and disastrous, but sometimes, strangely enough, it works. A man who seems not ready for the task, not good enough for the task, somehow grows immediately into his potential through the wild leap of faith itself. I only wish more women would risk these same kinds of wild leaps. But I've watched too many women do the opposite. I've watched far too many brilliant and gifted female creators say, I am 99.8% qualified for this task, but until I master that last smidgen of ability, I will hold myself back just to be on the safe side. Now, I cannot imagine where women ever got the idea that they must be perfect in order to be loved or successful. Ha ha ha, just kidding. I can totally imagine. We got it from every single message society has ever sent us. Thanks, all of human history. But we women must break this habit in ourselves, and we are the only ones who can break it. We must understand that the drive for perfectionism is a corrosive waste of time because nothing is ever beyond criticism. No matter how many hours you spend attempting to render something flawless, somebody will always be able to find fault with it. There are people out there who still consider Beethoven's symphonies a little bit too, you know, loud. At some point, you really just have to finish your work and release it as it is, if only so that you can go on to make other things with a glad and determined heart, which is the entire point, or should be. Marcus Aurelius chimes in. I've long been inspired by the private diaries of the second-century Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. The wise philosopher king never intended that his meditations be published, but I'm grateful that they were. I find it encouraging to watch this brilliant man, 2,000 years ago, trying to keep up his motivation to be creative and brave and searching. His frustrations and his self-cajoling sound amazingly contemporary, or maybe just eternal and universal. You can hear him working through all the same questions that we all must work through in our lives. Why am I here? What have I been called to do? How am I getting in my own way? How can I best live out my destiny? I especially love watching Marcus Aurelius fighting his perfectionism in order to get back to work on his writing, regardless of the results. 
Do what nature demands, he writes to himself. Get a move on if you have it in you, and don't worry whether anyone will give you credit for it. And don't go expecting Plato's Republic. Be satisfied with even the smallest progress and treat the outcome of it all as unimportant. Please tell me I am not the only one who finds it endearing and encouraging that a legendary Roman philosopher had to reassure himself that it's okay not to be Plato. Really, Marcus, it's okay. Just keep working. Through the mere act of creating something, anything, you might inadvertently produce work that is magnificent, eternal, or important, as Marcus Aurelius did, after all, with his meditations. You might not, on the other hand. But if your calling is to make things, then you still have to make things in order to live out your highest creative potential, and also in order to remain sane. Possessing a creative mind, after all, is something like having a border collie for a pet. It needs to work, or else it will cause you an outrageous amount of trouble. Give your mind a job to do, or else it will find a job to do. And you might not like the job it invents, eating the couch, digging a hole through the living room floor, biting the mailman, etc., it has taken me years to learn this, but it does seem to be the case that if I am not actively creating something, then I am probably actively destroying something, myself, a relationship, or my own peace of mind. I firmly believe that we all need to find something to do in our lives that stops us from eating the couch. Whether we make a profession out of it or not, we all need an activity that is beyond the mundane and that takes us out of our established and limiting roles in society, mother, employee, neighbor, brother, boss, etc. We all need something that helps us forget ourselves for a while, to momentarily forget our age, our gender, our socioeconomic background, our duties, our failures, and all that we have lost and screwed up. We need something that takes us so far out of ourselves that we forget to eat, forget to pee, forget to mow the lawn, forget to resent our enemies, forget to brood over our insecurities. Prayer can do that for us. Community service can do it. Sex can do it. Exercise can do it. And substance abuse can most certainly do it, albeit with god-awful consequences. But creative living can do it, too. Perhaps creativity's greatest mercy is this. By completely absorbing our attention for a short and magical spell— it can relieve us temporarily from the dreadful burden of being who we are. Best of all, at the end of your creative adventure, you have a souvenir, something that you made, something to remind you forever of your brief but transformative encounter with inspiration. That's what my books are to me, souvenirs of journeys that I took, in which I managed, blessedly, to escape myself for a little while. An abiding stereotype of creativity is that it turns people crazy. I disagree. Not expressing creativity turns people crazy. The Gospel of St. Thomas teaches, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you don't bring forth what is within you, what you don't bring forth will destroy you. Bring forth what is within you, then, whether it succeeds or fails. Do it whether the final product, your souvenir, is crap or gold. Do it whether the critics love you or hate you, or whether the critics have never heard of you and perhaps never will hear of you. Do it whether people get it or don't get it. It doesn't have to be perfect, and you don't have to be Plato. It's all just an instinct and an experiment and a mystery, so begin. Begin anywhere, preferably right now. And if greatness should ever accidentally stumble upon you, let it catch you hard at work. Hard at work and sane. Nobody's thinking about you. Long ago, when I was in my insecure twenties, I met a clever, independent, creative, and powerful woman in her mid-seventies who offered me a superb piece of life wisdom. She said, 
We all spend our 20s and 30s trying so hard to be perfect because we're so worried about what people will think of us. Then we get into our 40s and 50s and we finally start to be free because we decide that we don't give a damn what anyone thinks of us. But you won't be completely free until you reach your 60s and 70s when you finally realize this liberating truth. Nobody was ever thinking about you anyhow. They aren't. They weren't. They never were. People are mostly just thinking about themselves. People don't have time to worry about what you're doing or how well you're doing it because they're all caught up in their own dramas. People's attention may be drawn to you for a moment if you succeed or fail spectacularly and publicly, for instance, but that attention will soon enough revert right back to where it's always been, on themselves. While it may seem lonely and horrible at first to imagine that you aren't anyone's first order of business, there is also a great release to be found in this idea. You are free because everyone is too busy fussing over themselves to worry all that much about you. Go be whomever you want to be then. Do whatever you want to do. Pursue whatever fascinates you and brings you to life. Create whatever you want to create and let it be stupendously imperfect because it's exceedingly likely that nobody will even notice. And that's awesome. Done is better than good. The only reason I was able to persist in completing my first novel was that I allowed it to be stupendously imperfect. I pushed myself to continue writing it even though I strongly disapproved of what I was producing. That book was so far from perfect it made me nuts. I remember pacing around my room during the years that I worked on the novel, trying to gin up my courage to return to that lackluster manuscript every single day, despite its awfulness, reminding myself of this vow. I never promised the universe that I would be a great writer, goddammit. I just promised the universe that I would be a writer. At 75 pages in, I nearly stopped. It felt too terrible to continue, too deeply embarrassing. But I pushed through my shame only because I decided that I refused to go to my grave with 75 pages of an unfinished manuscript sitting in my desk drawer. I did not want to be that person. The world is filled with too many unfinished manuscripts as it is, and I didn't want to add another one to that bottomless pile. So no matter how much I thought my work stank, I had to persist. I also kept remembering what my mother always used to say, done is better than good. I heard that simple adage of my mother's again and again the entire time I was growing up. This was not because Carol Gilbert was a slacker. On the contrary, she was incredibly industrious and efficient, but more than anything else, she was pragmatic. There are only so many hours in a day, after all. There are only so many days in a year, only so many years in a life. You do what you can do as competently as possible within a reasonable time frame, and then you let it go. When it came to everything from washing the dishes to wrapping Christmas presents, my mother's thinking was much in line with General George Patton's. A good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan executed next week. Or, to paraphrase, a good enough novel violently written now is better than a perfect novel meticulously written never. I also think my mother understood this radical notion, that mere completion is a rather honorable achievement in its own right. What's more, it's a rare one. Because the truth of the matter is most people don't finish things. Look around you, the evidence is everywhere. People don't finish. They begin ambitious projects with the best of intentions, but then they get stuck in a mire of insecurity and doubt and hair-splitting, and they stop. So if you can just complete something, merely complete it, you're already miles ahead of the pack right there. You may want your work to be perfect, in other words. I just want mine to be finished.
in praise of crooked houses. I could sit down with you right now and go through each one of my books, page by page, and tell you everything that's wrong with them. This would make for an incredibly boring afternoon for both of us, but I could do it. I could show you everything that I elected not to fix, change, improve, or fuss over. I could show you every shortcut I took when I couldn't figure out how to more elegantly solve a complicated narrative puzzle. I could show you characters I killed off because I didn't know what else to do with them. I could show you gaps in logic and holes in research. I could show you all kinds of sticky tape and shoelaces holding those projects together. To save time, though, let me offer just one representative example. In my most recent novel, The Signature of All Things, there is an unfortunately underdeveloped character. She is rather egregiously improbable, I believe, anyhow, and her presence is little more than a convenience to the plot. I knew in my heart, even as I was writing her, that I did not get this character quite right, but I couldn't figure out how to bring her to life better as I should have. I was hoping to get away with it. Sometimes you do get away with things. I was hoping nobody would notice. But then I gave the book to some of my early readers while the book was still in manuscript, and they all pointed out the problem with this character. I considered trying to fix it, but what it would have taken for me to go back and remedy that one character was too much effort for not enough reward. For one thing, fixing this character would have required adding an additional 50 or 70 pages to a manuscript that was already over 700 pages long, and at some point you really have to show mercy to your readers and cut the thing off. I also felt it was too risky. To solve the problem of this character, I would have had to dismantle the entire novel back down to the early chapters and start over. And in rebuilding the story so radically, I feared I might end up destroying a book that was already done and was already good enough. It would be like a carpenter tearing down a finished house and completely starting over because he'd noticed at the very end of the construction project that the foundation was off by a few inches. Sure, by the end of the second construction, the foundation might be straighter, but the charm of the original structure might have been destroyed while months of time had been wasted. I decided not to do it. In short, I'd worked on that novel tirelessly for four years, had given it a tremendous amount of effort, love, and faith, and basically I liked it the way it was. Yes, there was some crookedness, but the walls were essentially strong, the roof held, and the windows functioned— and anyhow, I don't entirely mind living in a crooked house. I grew up in a crooked house. They aren't such bad places. I felt that my novel was an interesting finished product, maybe even more interesting, for its slightly wonky angles, so I let it go. And you know what happened when I released my admittedly imperfect book into the world? Not much. The earth stayed on its axis. Rivers did not run backward. Birds did not drop dead out of the air. I got some good reviews, some bad reviews, some indifferent reviews. Some people loved the signature of all things, some people didn't. A plumber who came over one day to repair my kitchen sink noticed the book sitting on the table and said, I can tell you right now, lady, that book ain't gonna sell, not with that title. Some people wished the novel had been shorter, some wished it were longer. Some readers wished the story had more dogs in it and less masturbation. A few critics made note of that one underdeveloped character, but nobody seemed overly bothered by her. In conclusion, a whole bunch of people had some opinions about my novel for a short while, and then everyone moved on, because people are busy, and they have their own lives to think about. But I'd had a thrilling intellectual and emotional experience writing The Signature of All Things, and the merits of that creative adventure were mine to keep forever. Those four years of my life had been wonderfully well spent. When I finished that novel, it was not a perfect thing, but I still felt it was the best work I'd ever done. 
and I believed I was a far better writer than I'd been before I began it. I would not trade a minute of that encounter for anything. But now that work was finished, and it was time for me to shift my attention to something new, something that would also someday be released as good enough. This is how I've always done it, and this is how I will keep doing it, so long as I am able, because that is the anthem of my people. That is the song of the disciplined half-ass. Success All those years when I was diligently laboring away at both my day jobs and my writing practice, I knew there was never any promise that any of this would work out. I always knew that I might not get what I wished for, that I might never become a published writer. Not everybody makes it to a place of comfortable success in the arts. Most people don't. And while I've always believed in magical thinking, I wasn't a child either. I knew that wishing would not make it so. Talent might not make it so either. Dedication might not make it so. Even amazing professional contacts, which I didn't have in any case, might not make it so. Creative living is stranger than other more worldly pursuits. The usual rules do not apply. In normal life, if you're good at something and you work hard at it, you will likely succeed. In creative endeavors, maybe not. Or maybe you will succeed for a spell and then never succeed again. You might be offered rewards on a silver platter even as a rug is simultaneously being pulled out from under you. You might be adored for a while, then go out of fashion. Other, dumber people might take your place as critical darlings. The patron goddess of creative success can sometimes seem like a rich, capricious old lady who lives in a giant mansion on a distant hill and who makes really weird decisions about who gets her fortune. She sometimes rewards charlatans and ignores the gifted. She cuts people out of her will who loyally served her for their entire lives and then gives a Mercedes to that cute boy who cut her lawn once. She changes her mind about things. We try to divine her motives, but they remain occult. She is never obliged to explain herself to us. In short, the goddess of creative success may show up for you, or she may not. Probably best, then, if you don't count on her, or attach your definition of personal happiness to her whims. Maybe better to reconsider your definition of success, period. For my own part, I decided early on to focus on my devotion to the work above all. That would be how I measured my worth. I knew that conventional success would depend upon three factors, talent, luck, and discipline, and I knew that two of those three things would never be under my control. Genetic randomness had already determined how much talent I'd been allotted, and destiny's randomness would account for my share of luck. The only piece I had any control over was my discipline. Recognizing that, it seemed like the best plan would be to work my ass off. That was the only card I had to play, so I played it hard. Mind you, hard work guarantees nothing in realms of creativity. Nothing guarantees anything in realms of creativity. But I cannot help but think that devotional discipline is the best approach. Do what you love to do, and do it with both seriousness and lightness. At least then you will know that you have tried, and that whatever the outcome, you have traveled a noble path. I have a friend, an aspiring musician, whose sister said to her one day, quite reasonably, What happens if you never get anything out of this? What happens if you pursue your passion forever, but success never comes? How will you feel then, having wasted your entire life for nothing? My friend, with equal reason, replied, If you can't see what I'm already getting out of this, then I'll never be able to explain it to you. When it's for love, you will always do it anyhow. Career versus Vocation It is for these reasons, the difficulty, the unpredictability, 
that I have always discouraged people from approaching creativity as a career move, and I always will, because with rare exceptions, creative fields make for crap careers. They make for crap careers, that is, if you define a career as something that provides for you financially in a fair and foreseeable manner, which is a pretty reasonable definition of a career. Even if things work out for you in the arts, parts of your career will likely always remain crap. You might not like your publisher, or your gallerist, or your drummer, or your cinematographer. You might hate your tour schedule, or your more aggressive fans, or your critics. You might resent answering the same questions over and over again in interviews. You might be constantly annoyed at yourself for always falling short of your own aspirations. Trust me, if you want to complain, you'll always find plenty to complain about, even when fortune appears to be shining her favor upon you. But creative living can be an amazing vocation if you have the love and courage and persistence to see it that way. I suggest that this may be the only sanity-preserving way to approach creativity, because nobody ever told us it would be easy, and uncertainty is what we sign up for when we say that we want to live creative lives. Everyone is panicking these days, for instance, about how much the Internet and digital technology are changing the creative world. Everyone is fretting over whether there will still be jobs and money available for artists going forward into this volatile new age. But allow me to point out that long before the Internet and digital technology ever existed, the arts were still a crap career. It's not like back in 1989 anybody was saying to me, you know where the money is, kid? Writing. They weren't saying that to anyone back in 1889 either, or in 1789, and they won't be saying it in 2089. But people will still try to be writers because they love the vocation. People will keep being painters, sculptors, musicians, actors, poets, directors, quilters, knitters, potters, glassblowers, metalworkers, ceramicists, calligraphers, collagists, nail artists, clog dancers, and Celtic harpists as well. Against all sound advice, people will stubbornly keep trying to make pleasing things for no particularly good reason, as we always have done. Is it sometimes a difficult path? Sure. Does it make for an interesting life? The most. Will the inevitable difficulties and obstacles associated with creativity make you suffer? That part, cross my heart, is entirely up to you. Elk Talk let me tell you a story about persistence and patience. Back in my early 20s, I wrote a short story called Elk Talk. The tale had grown out of an experience I'd had back when I was working as a cook on a ranch in Wyoming. One evening, I had stayed up late telling jokes and drinking beer with a few of the cowboys. These guys were all hunters, and we got to talking about elk calls, the various techniques for imitating a bull elk's mating call in order to draw the animals near. One of the cowboys, Hank, admitted that he had recently purchased a tape recording of some elk calls made by the greatest master of elk calling in elk hunting history, a guy named, and I will never forget this, Larry D. Jones. For some reason, it might have been the beer, I thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. I loved that there was somebody in the world named Larry D. Jones who made a living by recording himself imitating mating calls of elks, and I loved that people like my friend Hank bought these tapes in order to practice their own mating calls. I persuaded Hank to go find the Larry D. Jones instructional mating call tape, and I made him play it for me again and again while I laughed myself dizzy. It wasn't just the sound of the elk call that I found hilarious. It's an eardrum-shredding, styrofoam-against-styrofoam screech. I also loved the earnest twang of Larry D. Jones droning on and on about how to do it correctly. I found the whole thing to be comedy gold. Then, somehow, again, the beer may have played a role. 
I got this idea that Hank and I should go try it out, that we should stumble into the woods in the middle of the night with a boombox and the Larry D. Jones tape just to see what would happen. So we did. We were drunk and giddy and loud as we thrashed through the Wyoming mountains. Hank carried the boombox on his shoulder and turned up the volume as high as he could, while I kept falling over laughing at the loud artificial sound of a bull elk in rut, interspersed with Larry D. Jones's droning voice blasting through our surroundings. We could not have been less in tune with nature at that moment, but nature found us anyway. All at once there was a thunder of hooves. I'd never heard an actual thunder of hooves before. It's terrifying. And then a crashing of branches, and then the biggest elk you ever saw exploded into our clearing and stood there in the moonlight just a few short yards from us, snorting and pawing at the ground and tossing his antlered head in fury. What rival male has dared to bugle a mating call on my turf? Suddenly, Larry D. Jones didn't seem so funny anymore. Never have two people sobered up as fast as Hank and I sobered up right then. We'd been kidding, but this 700-pound beast was decidedly not kidding. He was ready for war. It was as if we'd been conducting a harmless little seance, but had inadvertently summoned forth an actual dangerous spirit. We'd been messing around with forces that should not be messed with, and we were not worthy. My impulse was to bow down before the elk, trembling, and to beg for mercy. Hank's impulse was smarter, to throw the boombox as far away from us as he could, as if it were about to detonate, anything to distance ourselves from the bogus voice that we had dragged into this all-too-real forest. We cowered behind a boulder. We gawped at the elk in wonder while it blew clouds of frosty breath, furiously looking for its rival, tearing up the earth beneath its hooves. When you see the face of God, it is meant to frighten you, and this magnificent creature had frightened us in exactly that manner. When the elk finally departed, we inched our way back to the ranch, feeling humbled and shaken and very mortal. It was awesome, in the classical definition of the word. So I wrote about it. I didn't tell this exact story, but I wanted to catch hold of that sensation, callow humans humbled by divine natural visitation, and use it as the basis for writing something serious and intense about man and nature. I wanted to take that electrifying personal experience and work it into a piece of short fiction using imagined characters. It took me many months to get that story right, or at least to get it as close to right as I possibly could for my age and abilities. When I finished writing the story, I called it Elk Talk. Then I started sending it out to magazines, hoping somebody would publish it. One of the publications that I sent Elk Talk to was the late great fiction journal Story. Many of my literary heroes, Cheever, Caldwell, Salinger, Heller, had been published there over the decades, and I wanted to be in those pages, too. A few weeks later, my inevitable rejection letter arrived in the post. But this was a really special rejection letter. You have to understand that rejection letters come in varying degrees, ranging across the full spectrum of the word no. There is not only the boilerplate form rejection letter, there is also the boilerplate rejection letter with a tiny personal note scrawled on the bottom in an actual human's handwriting, which might say something like, interesting, but not for us. It can be exhilarating to receive even such a sparse crumb of recognition, and many times in my youth I'd been known to run around crowing to my friends, I just got the most amazing rejection letter. But this particular rejection letter was from Story's well-respected editor-in-chief, Lois Rosenthal herself. Her response was thoughtful and encouraging. Ms. Rosenthal liked the story, she wrote. She tended to like stories about animals better than stories about people. Ultimately, however, she felt that the ending fell short. Therefore, she would not be publishing it. 
but she wished me good luck. To an unpublished writer, getting rejected as nicely as that from the editor-in-chief herself is almost like winning the Pulitzer. I was elated. It was by far the most fantastic rejection I'd ever received. And then I did what I used to do all the time back then. I took that rejected short story out of its self-addressed stamped envelope and sent it off to another magazine to collect yet another rejection letter, maybe an even better one. Because that is how you play the game, onward ever, backward never. A few years passed. I kept working at my day jobs and writing on the side. I finally did get published with a different short story in a different magazine. Because of that lucky break, I was now able to get a professional literary agent. Now it was my agent, Sarah, who sent my work out to publishers on my behalf. No more photocopying for me. My agent had her own photocopier. A few months into our relationship, Sarah called me with lovely news. My old short story, Elk Talk, was going to be published. Wonderful, I said. Who bought it? Story Magazine, she reported. Lois Rosenthal loved it. Huh. Interesting. A few days later, I had a phone conversation with Lois Rosenthal herself, who could not have been kinder. She told me that she thought Elk Talk was perfect and that she couldn't wait to publish it. You even liked the ending? I asked. Of course, she said. I adore the ending. As we spoke, I was holding in my hands the very rejection letter she had written me just a few years earlier about this same story. Clearly, she had no recollection of ever having read Elk Talk before. I didn't bring it up. I was delighted that she was embracing my work, and I didn't want to seem disrespectful, snarky, or ungrateful. But I certainly was curious. So I asked, What is it that you like about my story, if you don't mind telling me? She said, It's so evocative. It feels mythical. It reminds me of something, but I can't quite put my finger on what. I knew better than to say, It reminds you of itself. God in a Boat so how do we interpret this tale? The cynical interpretation would be, this is unequivocal evidence that the world is a place of deep unfairness. Because look at the facts. Lois Rosenthal didn't want Elk Talk when it was submitted to her by an unknown author, but she did want it when it was submitted to her by a famous literary agent. Therefore, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Talent means nothing and connections mean everything, and the world of creativity, like the greater world itself, is a mean and unfair place. If you want to see it that way, go right ahead. But I didn't see it that way. On the contrary, I saw it as another example of big magic, and again, a witty one. I saw it as proof that you must never surrender, that no doesn't always mean no, and that miraculous turns of fate can happen to those who persist in showing up. Also, just try to imagine how many short stories a day Lois Rosenthal was reading back in the early 1990s. I've seen slush piles at magazines. Picture a tower of manila envelopes stacked up to the sky. We all like to think that our work is original and unforgettable, but surely it must all run together after a certain point, even the animal-themed stories. Moreover, I don't know what kind of mood Lois was in when she read Elk Talk the first time. She might have read it at the end of a long day, or after an argument with a colleague, or just before she had to drive to the airport to pick up a relative she wasn't looking forward to seeing. I don't know what sort of mood she was in when she read it the second time, either. Maybe she'd just come back from a restorative vacation. Maybe she'd just received elating news. A loved one didn't have cancer after all. Who knows? All I know is that when Lois Rosenthal read my short story for the second time, it echoed in her consciousness and sang out to her. 
but that echo was only in her mind because I had planted it there several years earlier by sending her my story in the first place, and also because I had stayed in the game even after the initial rejection. This event also taught me that these people, the ones who stand at the gates of our dreams, are not automatons. They are just people. They are just like us. They are whimsical and quirky. They're a little different every day, just as you and I are a little different every day. There is no neat template that can ever predict what will capture any one person's imagination or when. You just have to reach them at the right moment. But since the right moment is unknowable, you must maximize your chances, play the odds, put yourself forward in stubborn good cheer, and then do it again and again and again. The effort is worth it because when at last you do connect— it is an otherworldly delight of the highest order, because this is how it feels to lead the faithful creative life. You try and try and try, and nothing works, but you keep trying, and you keep seeking, and then sometimes, in the least expected place and time, it finally happens. You make the connection. Out of nowhere, it all comes together. Making art does sometimes feel like you're holding a seance or like you're calling out in the night for a wild animal on the prowl. What you're doing seems impossible and even silly, but then you hear the thunder of hooves, and some beautiful beast comes rushing into the glade searching for you just as urgently as you have been searching for it. So you must keep trying. You must keep calling out in those dark woods for your own big magic. You must search tirelessly and faithfully, hoping against hope to someday experience that divine collision of creative communion, either for the first time or one more time. Because when it all comes together, it's amazing. When it all comes together, the only thing you can do is bow down in gratitude, as if you have been granted an audience with the divine. Because you have. Lastly, this. Many years ago, my Uncle Nick went to see the eminent American writer Richard Ford give a talk at a bookstore in Washington, D.C. During the Q&A, after the reading, a middle-aged man in the audience stood up and said something like this. Mr. Ford, you and I have much in common. Just like you, I've been writing short stories and novels my whole life. You and I are about the same age, from the same background, and we write about the same themes. The only difference is that you have become a celebrated man of letters, and I, despite decades of effort, have never been published. This is heartbreaking to me. My spirit has been crushed by all the rejection and disappointment. I wonder if you have any advice for me, but please, sir, whatever you do, don't just tell me to persevere because that's the only thing people ever tell me to do, and hearing that only makes me feel worse. Now, I wasn't there, and I don't know Richard Ford personally, but according to my uncle, who is a good reporter, Ford replied, Sir, I'm sorry for your disappointment. Please believe me, I would never insult you by simply telling you to persevere. I can't even imagine how discouraging that would be to hear after all these years of rejection. In fact, I will tell you something else, something that may surprise you, I'm going to tell you to quit. The audience froze. What kind of encouragement was this? Ford went on. I say this to you only because writing is clearly bringing you no pleasure. It is only bringing you pain. Our time on earth is short and should be enjoyed. You should leave this dream behind and go find something else to do with your life. Travel, take up new hobbies, spend time with your family and friends, relax. But don't write anymore, because it's obviously killing you. There was a long silence. Then Ford smiled and added, almost as an afterthought, However, I will say this. 
if you happen to discover after a few years away from writing that you have found nothing that takes its place in your life, nothing that fascinates you or moves you or inspires you to the same degree that writing once did, well then, sir, I'm afraid you will have no choice but to persevere. Part 5. Trust. Does it love you? My friend, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, is a botanist and an author who teaches environmental biology at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. Her students are all fervent young environmentalists, earnest as can be, desperate to save the world. Before they can get down to the business of world-saving, though, Robin often asks her students these two questions. The first question is, do you love nature? Every hand in the room goes up. The second question is, do you believe that nature loves you in return? Every hand in the room goes down. At which point Robin says, then we have a problem already. The problem is this. These earnest young world savers honestly believe that the living earth is indifferent to them. They believe that humans are nothing but passive consumers and that our presence here on earth is a destructive force. We take, take, take and offer nothing of benefit to nature in return. They believe that humans are here on the planet by random accident and that therefore the earth doesn't give a damn about us. Ancient people did not see it this way, needless to say. Our ancestors always operated with a sense of being in a reciprocal emotional relationship with their physical surroundings, whether they felt that they were being rewarded by Mother Nature or punished by her, at least they were engaged in a constant conversation with her. Robin believes that modern people have lost that sense of conversation, lost that awareness of the Earth communicating with us just as much as we are communicating with it. Instead, modern people have been schooled to believe that nature is deaf and blind to them, perhaps because we believe that nature has no inherent sentience, which is a somewhat pathological construct because it denies any possibility of a relationship. Even the notion of a punitive Mother Earth is better than the notion of an indifferent one because at least anger represents some sort of energetic exchange. Without that sense of relationship, Robin warns her students, they are missing out on something incredibly important. They are missing out on their potential to become co-creators of life. As Robin puts it, the exchange of love between Earth and people calls forth the creative gifts of both. The earth is not indifferent to us, but rather calling for our gifts in return for hers, the reciprocal nature of life and creativity. Or, to put it more simply, nature provides the seed, man provides the garden, each is grateful for the other's help. So Robin always begins right there. Before she can teach these students how to heal the world, she has to teach them how to heal their notion of themselves in the world. She has to convince them of their right to even be here at all. Again, the arrogance of belonging. She has to introduce them to the concept that they might actually be loved in return by the very entity that they themselves revere, by nature itself, by the very entity that created them. Because otherwise, it's never going to work. Because otherwise, nobody, not the earth, not the students, not any of us, will ever benefit. Worst Girlfriend Ever Inspired by this notion, I now often ask aspiring young writers the same line of questions. Do you love writing, I ask. Of course they do, duh. Then I ask, do you believe that writing loves you in return? They look at me like I should be institutionalized. Of course not, they say. Most of them report that writing is totally indifferent to them. 
And if they do happen to feel a reciprocal relationship with their creativity, it is usually a deeply sick relationship. In many cases, these young writers claim that writing flat out hates them. Writing messes with their heads. Writing torments them and hides from them. Writing punishes them. Writing destroys them. Writing kicks their asses ten ways to Sunday. As one young writer I know put it, for me, writing is like that bitchy, beautiful girl in high school who you always worshipped, but who only toyed with you for her own purposes. You know in your heart that she's bad news and you should probably just walk away from her forever, but she always lures you back in, and just when you think she's finally going to be your girlfriend, she shows up at school holding hands with the captain of the football team, pretending she's never met you, and all you can do is weep in the locked bathroom stall. Writing is evil. That being the case, I asked him, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a writer he said. Addicted to suffering. Are you beginning to see how screwed up this is? It is not only aspiring writers who feel this way. Older, established authors say the exact same dark things about their own work. Where do you think the young writers learned it from? Norman Mailer claimed that every one of his books had killed him a little more. Philip Roth has never stopped talking about the medieval torments writing inflicted upon him for the duration of his long-suffering career. Oscar Wilde called the artistic existence one long, lovely suicide. I adore Wilde, but I have trouble seeing suicide as lovely. I have trouble seeing any of this anguish as lovely. And it's not just writers who feel that way. Visual artists do it, too. Here's the painter, Francis Bacon. The feelings of desperation and unhappiness are more useful to an artist than the feeling of contentment, because desperation and unhappiness stretch your whole sensibility. Actors do it, dancers do it, and musicians most certainly do it. Rufus Wainwright once admitted that he was terrified to settle down into a happy relationship because without the emotional drama that came from all those dysfunctional love affairs, he was afraid of losing access to that dark lake of pain he felt was so critical to his music. And let's not even get started on the poets. Suffice it to say that the modern language of creativity, from its youngest aspirants up to its acknowledged masters, is steeped in pain, desolation, and dysfunction. Numberless artists toil away in emotional and physical solitude, disassociated not only from other humans, but also from the source of creativity itself. Worse, their relationship with their work is often emotionally violent. You want to make something? You are told to open up a vein and bleed. Time to edit your work? you are instructed to kill your darlings. Ask a writer how his book is going, and he might say, I finally broke its spine this week. And that's if he had a good week. A Cautionary Tale One of the most interesting up-and-coming novelists I know these days is a clever young woman named Katie Arnold Ratliff. Katie writes like a dream, but she told me that she'd gotten blocked from her work for several years because of something a writing professor had said to her. Unless you are emotionally uncomfortable while you are writing, you will never produce anything of value. Now, there's a level at which I understand what Katie's writing professor might have been trying to say. Perhaps the intended message was, don't be afraid of reaching for your creative edge, or never back away from the discomfort that can sometimes arise while you're working. These seem like perfectly legitimate notions to me. But to suggest that nobody ever made valuable art unless they were in active emotional distress is not only untrue, it's also kind of sick. But Katie believed it. Out of respect and deference to her professor, Katie took those words to heart and came to embrace the notion that if her creative process wasn't bringing her anguish, then she wasn't doing it right. No blood, no glory, right? 
The problem was Katie had an idea for a novel that actually made her feel excited. The book that she wanted to write seemed so cool, so twisted, and so strange that she thought it might genuinely be fun to do it. In fact, it seemed like so much fun, it made her feel guilty. Because if something was a pleasure to write, then it couldn't possibly have any artistic value, could it? So she put off writing that cool and twisted novel of hers for years and years because she didn't trust in the legitimacy of her own anticipated pleasure. Eventually, I'm happy to report, she broke through that mental obstacle and finally wrote her book. And no, it was not necessarily easy to write, but she did have a great time writing it. And yes, it is brilliant. What a pity, though, to have lost all those years of inspired creativity and only because she didn't believe her work was making her miserable enough. Yeah, heaven forbid anyone should enjoy their chosen vocation.